are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with the step on humility, step number 25. And as we've mentioned at the beginning of the last few groups, that the two uh, studies that we are undergoing now are working very well together. Uh, both are talking about humility. And so we're having a nice mixture of St. John's writing, as well as a multitude of the fathers in the Evergatinos. And uh, what is emerging, and, you know, it was very difficult for me to read read the sections moving ahead here in preparation. I've certainly read it many times over, but as we've gone deeper with it, uh, you begin to see more and more how important it is, but uh, how quick of a path it is to intimacy with the Lord and a participation in the life of the kingdom, that it is a virtue like no other. And it does conform us to Christ. And in that conformity, it draws us into deep intimacy with him. And this begins to emerge more and more in John's writing and in a way that I haven't heard or listened to it before. So it's been very challenging. But again, we're on page 182 with number 11 at the bottom of the page. A humble monk will not meddle with mysteries, but a proud one will pry into judgments. And uh, I don't think John is speaking here of theology. I think it is more about uh, the mysteries of God's mind, and especially in relationship to our own life and our willingness to trust in his providence. Um and allow ourselves to be guided along the path that he wills. That so often we will will be calculating or, uh, about our life or about our decisions or uh, trying to manage things in a way that fit with our understanding uh, of life and of what it is to be a Christian. And uh, often this clouds our vision and prevents us from being drawn along simply by uh, and, and according to the will of God. And I think when we seek to meddle, uh, we insert ourselves in such a way uh, that we can do derail ourselves. And often I think the fruit of that is not peace of mind and heart, but rather agitation and frustration because we're trying to manage others and our life as a whole, rather than living it and staying focused on the present moment. 
and trusting that God will guide things as, as he wills. Number 12, the demons praised one of the most discerning brothers, appearing to him in visible form. But this most wise man said to them, if you cease to praise me through the thoughts of my heart, I shall conclude from your departure that I am great. But if you continue to praise me from your very praise, I shall guess my impurity. For every proud hearted man is unclean before the Lord. So either go away from me and then I shall become great or else praise me and through you I shall obtain more humility. Struck with bewilderment, the, they immediately vanished from sight. So the monk you know, is aware of how he's uh, being tempted uh, to think uh, well of himself. And, but he tells the demons that if you do praise me uh, and continue to praise me, you know, I'll understand from this my, my own impurity, uh, that uh, your praise is trying to elevate me in my own mind. And whereas I know even the righteous person is capable of great sin and does sin uh, multiple times a day. And so with th these, this thought and others, uh, he throws them into a kind of bewilderment that humility has the capacity to see through such temptations, that once one embraces the reality of one's, one's own poverty before God, uh, then it becomes much more difficult to, to seek to elevate oneself or embrace the, the praise of others, whether it's demons or, or human beings. It continues, may your soul not be a pond on the life-giving stream, a pond which sometime, is sometimes full and sometimes dried up from the heat of glory and exaltation. That may it become a fountain of dispassion, ever welling up into a river of poverty. And so, he's, you know, our soul is to be living waters uh, that are, are moving, that are guiding us toward God. And uh, as I was thinking about this particular text, it is reminiscent of the teachings on repentance, this constant movement toward God. Uh, if our heart becomes a pond uh, in one way or another, either uh, full or dried up from the heat of glory and exaltation, we are not moving toward God. We are not being guided uh, along by the spirit of humble repentance. And, uh, and so it's a, a powerful image and I think a good one to hold on to, that th th there's not a static uh, kind of reality for us in the spiritual life, that we are to be moving constantly toward God. Repentance, as we've talked about many times before, is not a, a static reality or episodic, but this constant movement of the mind and the heart toward the Lord. He goes on to say, no, beloved, that the valleys shall abound with wheat and spiritual fruit, this valley is a soul low and humble among the mountains, that is, it is filled with labors and virtues, and always remains unhaughty and steadfast. 
David did not say, I have fasted, I have kept vigil, or I've lain on the bare earth, but I humbled myself and straight away the Lord saved me. So another image here, you know, looking at the soul as a valley, uh, a place we are, where we are to remain ever humbled before God, that in the spiritual life, it would be easy for us uh, to look at ascetic practices and begin to admire them. Uh, when one uh, becomes more adept at fasting or rising early to prayer or remaining up late to pray, that we can become focused upon these things as ends in themselves. Uh, but John warns us to stay within the valley, humble, stay humbled before the Lord, uh, that this is the, the place where, especially we see in the saints and in uh, the heart of David, who was capable of great sin, uh, came to acknowledge very quickly that this is what drew him back into that loving relationship with the Lord by humbly acknowledging his sin before him. Repentance raises the fallen, mourning knocks at the gate of heaven, and holy humility opens it. But I affirm this, and I worship a trinity in unity, and a unity in trinity. And so these are the things, again, they're not ends in themselves, but they lead us to that end, which is union with God. They lead us to deification, uh, to this deep intimacy with the Lord. So repentance is that first step, that turning toward him, mourning, our contrition, our compunction for the sin is the knocking at the door, and humility opens it. And so again, we're, we're given an insight, and this is where things begin as I began, as I was reading, to agitate the heart a bit, we begin to see how close humility draws us to God. And again, why it should be pursued and loved uh, as difficult as, as it is for us, that to abase oneself, to acknowledge one's deep poverty and need for God is the very thing that lifts us up, that allows uh, us to enter into this relationship with him. Because in a a sense it is the part of the very essence of God himself. It's how God has revealed himself to us, uh, in, in particular, again, through the incarnation. He empties himself and uh, becomes an infant, wordless one, but then uh, humbles himself, becomes obedient, becomes a slave, a servant to others, and obedient even unto death. And so to uh, have humility is to be able to open the very door to the kingdom itself and to be able to enter in. All visible things get their light from the sun, and all that is done according to reason gets its force from humility. Where there is no light, everything is dark. Where there is no humility, all that we have is rotten. So just as the sun gives us light, allows us to see our way forward, so humility allows us to see what has great value and to pursue it, and to pursue it in a way that is pleasing to God. Lacking this humility, even when we pursue good things, uh, John warns us, all that we have uh, is rotten. 
that unless it is imbued, as it were, with the, the, the very spirit of God, the spirit of humility, uh, then it is not going to bear fruit within us. And for religious people, this is particularly important that, you know, simply doing the right thing or being dutiful uh, in the spiritual life does not mean that we have given our hearts over to God or that we acknowledge all things as a gift from God or that we have gratitude for what has been given to us. Our focus can still be very much upon the self. Any thoughts or comments as of yet? Okay. Number 17. In the whole universe, there is one place that has only once seen the sun. And there is one thought which has often given birth to humility. And there is one day only on which the whole world rejoiced. And there is one virtue only which the demons cannot imitate. Uh, so he's, he's speaking here, you know, clearly of a number of things. One place that saw, uh, only saw the sun once, and that's where, where the waters were parted, the, the Red Sea. Uh, and uh, one thought has uh, often given birth uh, to humility, the acknowledgement of one's sin. And there's only one day in the whole world where the whole world rejoices. And this is in reference to Psalm 96, that the, the Lord comes. Uh, so speaking really, again, of the incarnation, the, 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 this is the day when Christ is born unto us, uh, when the, the world rejoices that our, our Savior has come. And joy comes to, is born into the world, born unto us. And uh, as we approach the celebration of the nativity, this is a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, certainly that our, our joy is found in the Lord, that joy is born into the world for us, that it comes not from our, ourselves or what we produce from our own hand, uh, but it is God himself that has come to us and again lifts us up that we might experience and taste something of the joy of the kingdom, the kingdom of God has come. And uh, now specifically, the kingdom of God is within uh, through our participation in the divine life, through the Holy Eucharist and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's one virtue only which the demons cannot imitate, and this is humility. And uh, so this is also why then it's presented so often as uh, the safe path, that it's inaccessible to, to the demons, that one who walks this path uh, goes unaccosted uh, by the evil one because he cannot uh, disguise himself, as he so often does, I think, in relationship to uh, other virtues. It is one thing to exalt oneself, another not to exalt oneself, and another to humble oneself. One person may be judging others all day, all the day long. Another does not judge others, but he does not condemn himself. The third, a third, although he is innocent, is always passing judgment on himself. So the, the true, truly humble one is not simply the person who doesn't judge others. It's the person who uh, keeps his focus upon himself 
and his own poverty and does not cease to abase himself and to acknowledge that sin before God. And uh, so certainly we are not to judge others, but uh, it is this willingness on our part to, to acknowledge our, our poverty, even when there's a sense of our own innocence. Uh, you know, Paul reminds us, and this comes up later on in the text, that uh, even when our conscience, even though his conscience does not uh, bother him, he does not count himself as innocent before God. And, you know, I think this is, again, what we are to keep in mind, that even though our conscience doesn't rebuke us, our conscience is not infallible. And there can be some uh, lack of formation there that prevents us from seeing some aspect of our poverty. So Anthony did write, didn't Paul say he didn't even judge himself? That's correct. Uh, that uh, he knew what John is saying here. It is one thing to be humble, another to strive for humility, and another to praise the humble. The first belongs to the perfect, the second to the truly obedient, and the third to the faithful. So the faithful person at least acknowledges the nature of the virtue and his goodness and his importance in, in the spiritual life. Uh, the second, we are told, strives for it, though, uh, albeit in an imperfect fashion. And certainly the perfect then is the one who becomes it. And, and so is, again, conformed to Christ. He who has humbled himself within will not be cheated by his lips, for what is not in the treasury cannot be brought out through this door. So a truly humble person uh, will never be betrayed by his speech. And John is referring here to uh, our Lord's teaching out of the heart, the mouth speaks that it's out of the treasury of our heart that the mouth speaks. And if we are humble, our words will be humble. The way that we speak uh, uh, to others and engage others will be a reflection of that reality. Uh, but if our heart is filled with impurity or harshness, pride, then that's going to be reflected within our, our speech as well. And so when we do see this, this is a good indicator for us when we do find ourselves struggling even if I think it's within our own minds, uh, the things that we say to ourselves about others or think to ourselves is also a reflection of what's within the heart and whether or not there's humility there. A horse, when alone, often imagines that it is galloping, but when it is with others, it finds out how slow it is. Uh, again, this is one of those great images from, from John that you know, running by itself, uh, a horse can have this sense of its own swiftness and there can be a kind of joy there until it finds itself running with others and uh, it can begin to gauge its real capacity. And so it is uh, for us as well, you know, to come into the presence of one who is truly humble, uh, truly, uh, holy, one begins to see 
what is within one one's heart. And uh, often, again, in our own estimation, we will see ourselves like this galloping horse until we stand revealed in one fashion or another. And John will speak of this in a particular way uh, of indignities when they come to us, uh, that a humble person will not shy away from these things, but uh, the one who's prideful will stand revealed and find himself shrinking back from them. Okay. Any comments or thoughts so far? Okay. Number 22. It is a sign of the beginning of health when our thought no longer prides itself on its natural gifts, but as long as it has that stench in its nose, it cannot detect the fragrance of myrrh. So you know, we will often become captivated by our own gifts or ability, abilities, natural gifts. And this can be true even in terms of natural virtues. You know, we can become fixated upon these things uh, that perhaps we have fostered in one measure or another, uh, but uh, it's not uh, the same as that which is given to us as gift and comes through the grace of God. And so John, John tells us here, as long as it has this stench in its nose, it cannot de detect the fragrance of myrrh. It doesn't have, we don't have the ability uh, to detect that which is truly holy or truly humble because we're filled with the odor of our, you know, of our own pride. Uh, it's a stench, but to us it's, it smells like something that is sweet. Holy humility said, my lover will not rebuke nor or judge or rule or display his wisdom until he has attained union with me. For when he is united with me, the law is no longer applicable to him. Uh, again, this is one of the statements that was sobering. I think as I, I read this over again, holy humility said, my lover will not rebuke or judge or rule or display his wisdom until he's attained union with me. Only the, only the heart that has been united to this virtue, uh, in whom this virtue dwells, then has the capacity freely to guide others or to display wisdom or even offer fraternal correction. Uh, at this point, the law is no longer applicable to them in the sense that uh, when one has been shaped fully by the humility of Christ and by love, one is capable of treading where others cannot, uh, that there isn't the danger of, uh, again, falling into sin by doing these things, to manifest one's wisdom when uh, it arises out of, a, out of a humble heart. They aren't conscious of themselves uh, as being the origin of these uh, abilities, even, that what they are most conscious of is the, the presence of God and not even being aware of themselves, so as to stand back and admire uh, these things or to be putting on, as it were, a display uh, for others to admire. 
what they are simply doing is offering the gift of themselves to others uh, and seeking to console others as they themselves have been consoled in one form or another through the truth or through the very act of kindness and love and tenderness towards others. But when there is this marriage between the heart and humility, one, one has the freedom to do that. Suzanne writes, uh, but the hour cometh and now is when the true adorer shall adore the Father in spirit and in truth. Uh, for the Father also seeketh such to adore him. Right. Uh, so to adore him in spirit and truth, as we see here, John tells us uh, that's easier said than done. I think we often will adore ourselves in a truth that we create for ourselves. And I think John's point here is that this living in humility is to allow ourselves to live in the light of Christ. And for that light to, to illuminate every part of ourselves, even the deepest parts that we keep hidden from ourselves, that we make ourselves so vulnerable before God in prayer that we fear nothing that is exposed about us. The idea, Father Marty writes, of humility of heart will be on the lips reminds me that it seems to me when I say she or he or you made me angry. It is not so much about the other, but God shining the light on where he wants to work with me on humility or other aspects of theosis. No one made me, but merely revealed where I need God's touch of humility or healing. Yes, ab absolutely. And we pick up a lot when we look at how we talk about things. And this is one of those areas that where we will say to others when they do something, uh, you know, you, you made me angry or you made, made me do this. Uh, but what that is revealing is not something about them, but is what is within our heart. If we are humble, if there is love within us, that then a person uh, can say or do what they will or even insult us. And our response is not that of anger. Uh, it's we've heard so often, uh, whether it's in the Evergetinos or Isaac, you know, to seek to cover. We seek to cover others in uh, their weakness rather than uh, expose it. And, uh, and often humility would also lead us to receive that uh, judgment as more or less accurate, whether or not we did it at that moment uh, or not. Um, so we, language, yeah, it does reveal a lot. And when I was a young novice or priest that used to say that to me all the time, you know, you can't say I made you. And it used to make me really angry. <laughs> <laughs> because I felt that he uh, was goading me uh, and using this this kind of wisdom. And it was all in good humor. But uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, it is revealing how easily our buttons are pushed. And this little saying, you know, you made me reveals, uh, reveals that in, in its full light. Number 24, 
the foul fiends whispered praise into the heart of an ascetic who was striving for blessed humility. But by divine inspiration, he contrived to conquer the guile of the spirits by a pious ruse. He rose and wrote on the wall of his cell the names of the highest virtues in order, that is, perfect love, angelic humility, pure prayer, inviolable chastity, and others like these. And so when thoughts of vainglory began to praise him, he said to them, let us go and be judged. Then going to the wall, he read the names and cried to himself, when you possess all these, then you will know how far you still are from God. And so it's interesting. You know, it's a, a beautiful uh, little image for us and the ruse here that I'll, I'll write on the walls all the greatest virtues so that when I am attacked, I'll bring myself before these and read these out loud in order to uh, expose the vainglory. But the last sentence here, I think, is the, the most captivating. When you possess all of it, these, then you will know how far you are still from God. So even when you possess holy humility and this kind of perfect love and pure prayer and an inviolable chastity, that in, in the possession of them, you come to see how far you are from God. That uh, the more that we grow in virtue, the more clearly we, we see the truth that all is grace and that our response is to be simply that of gratitude or to say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what we are supposed to have done and uh, that we are not doing anything special. So to live the life of virtue, to become perfect in love or humility is to be what we've been created to be in the, as those created in the image and likeness of God. So even as we come to possess these things by his, his mercy, that what should be revealed to us is still our need for conversion of how far we are from that perfect love of God. There's this, you know, kind of almost perpetual deepening of humility that takes place. And this is why I said in, in reading it, it becomes almost a little unsettling because it lifts you up to God, but at the same time, it exposes, uh, you know, the expanse of one's own vainglory. And uh, so it's an extraordinary thing, you know, that we are sh shown that this draws us into the very life of God, but how often we will choose the path that takes us uh, far away from him even while we're pursuing virtue. Number 25, we cannot describe the power and essence of this sun, humility, but from its properties and effects, we can explain its intrinsic nature. So John admits here that we, it's impossible to, to really capture the essence of this virtue. Uh, through mere words, uh, that we are grasping 
as we try to understand this. We do see something, though, of its properties by the effect that it has upon the heart, upon the soul, and how it leads us uh, to engage others and how we see ourselves before God. But the moment we try uh, to capture it by mere words, uh, we've limited it uh, in a way that it does not have limits, that there is something expansive about this virtue. And this is expressed, I think, even, even more so here in number 26. Humility is a divine shelter to prevent us from seeing our achievements. Humility is an abyss of self-abasement, inaccessible to any thief. Humility is a tower of strength against the face of the enemy. No advantage shall his enemy have over him, nor shall the sun, or rather the thought of iniquity, avail to hurt him anymore. But he will hew down his enemies before his face, and them that hate him shall be put to flight. So the, the language becomes more intense here the further John proceeds. A divine shelter preventing us from seeing our achievements, that as we are drawn into the divine life, that uh, our eyes are shielded from seeing our achievements as if they are our own. If we live in communion with the Lord, what we see is the Lord, that we have eyes as it were only for him in love and desire him only. And so the, the the more humble we become, the less capable we become of seeing our own achievements. Uh, again, the, the, the language here, an abyss of self-abasement, uh, but an abyss that protects us from the, the thief that would steal the very virtue from us, that it, it is never-ending. We never in this world can become too humble uh, uh, because we are being placed outside or seeking to be placed outside of the grasp of the evil one. And so acknowledging our poverty and our need for God's mercy is something that we never come to an end, uh, come to it, we never come to its end. And again, that can be unsettling as we, we think about it and think about striving about it, except for the fact that we are being told at the same time that it's a tower of strength. So as an abyss and as a tower, it protects us from the, the reach of the evil one. And so, uh, and not only the evil one, but from the thoughts that would emerge within our hearts or take hold of our hearts, uh, to guide us into sin or to guide us uh, away from the Lord, that it puts to flight the very thoughts that would, would draw us away from God and from gazing upon him. Uh, a couple of comments here. Su uh, Suzanne writes, my take home from what I've studied with you so, I'm sorry, hold on for one second, so far is that humility is a great grace and a participation of God, and not something we can attain solely by our own effort. 
we do best to work to dispose ourselves to receive it. Yes, I mean, that's, I think in my reading of it with this group this time, I think this is what has come to step forward uh, for me in it, that it's not like we're climbing up this ladder. <laughs> it's sort of a funny way to think about it, climbing up a ladder of humility. It's it's rather more uh, more of an abandonment to uh, to the, the love of God, of falling into the abyss of that love and that truth, and letting go of any illusion uh, that we find life outside of Him. Uh, any more than we've created our own, own life. And so it's a letting go of illusion. You know, as we are seemingly falling into this abyss, we're also being freed from the the illusion that uh, of a false identity, the one that Adam and Eve fell into. You know, eat of the fruit of the tree and you will know for yourself good and evil, and then you will become like gods. And humility is takes us along the opposite path, back to God, but by falling, as it were, into this abyss of humility, of acknowledging in a perfect way uh, our dependence upon God and his grace, that he is the source of life for us. Cindy writes... How would St. John Clonicus advise us to ask for a raise or just don't do it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. No, I, I think there, if you're talking about this seriously, there, there are, uh, if we're talking about the spiritual life, no. In uh, the sense of grace, you know, God gives it in abundance and gives it as he wills and according with his wisdom. If we're talking about our work in the world, there is something uh, of legitimate ambition, you know, of seeking to do well at what we do and what has been entrusted to us. And, you know, to have that acknowledged in some form or another is not necessarily a bad thing or to be compensated for it. You know, certainly one's identity is not to be sought in it uh, in the way that we seek our identity in Christ. But there is value to human labor and dignity that comes through it. And part of the way that our society, our culture acknowledges that is through being given a regular raise. So an employer doesn't want to uh, beat his employees down, but rather to raise them up. Get it? Raise them up. <laughs> Sorry, it's like folks. Uh, so Cindy said, yes, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, the chasm between the holiness, writes Rebecca, uh, uh, the holiness of God and fallen humanity is so great, it's impossible not to be humble once someone has perceived it. Yes, I, I believe that's what St. John is communicating to us here. And I, I don't think, you know, despite the language, I don't think that it's meant to inspire fear and anxiety in us. I think the one that has come to trust in the love and the mercy of God, uh, even when they find themselves falling into that abyss, uh, understands that one is going to fall into the hands of God and into his eternal love. And uh, when we understand that truth is a person, then again, it becomes something that we do not fear. 
that we willingly cast ourselves, as it were, into this abyss. And I think this is what begins to make the action of some of the saints understandable for us. We've talked a number of times about holy fools. You know, why would one embrace that kind of faith when you would bring down upon yourself the scorn of others? Uh, and it's because they've let go long ago of uh, their desire to hold on to the dignity that the world would bestow upon us. Uh, the the paltry palms, uh, I'm sorry, the paltry alms that the world would throw into our lap. You know, we we sit there and we're desperate to gather them up uh, as quickly as we can. But you know, the the one who's become a holy fool, you know, has no desire for them whatsoever because he realizes uh, that they all pass into nothingness. There's one thing alone that endures. Number 27, besides all the distinguishing properties indicated above, the great possessor of this wealth has others in his soul. And all these properties, except one, are visible signs of this wealth. You will know in yourself and not be led astray that you have this holy possession within you by an abundance of unspeakable light by an unutterable love for prayer, and before this is attained, by a heart that does not judge the faults of others. And the precursor of what has been said is hatred for all vainglory. So John does say that one can come to see this and the blessing of it, uh, and the unspeakable light uh, that comes through it, but uh, only when, in a sense, when it's been preceded by all these things that he sets before us, an unutterable love for prayer, uh, a heart that does not judge the faults of others, and where vainglory has been destroyed. So basically, uh, every step that we've covered so far in the ladder once we possess all of these things or have overcome them, then we will see something of the, the wealth of this virtue. And I think it is hard to see it because uh, we are acknowledging that that wealth is not found within ourselves. And the ego uh, is slow to let go of that illusion. You know, we we constantly want to attribute it to ourselves, our hard work in whatever form or fashion that might take. Number 28, he who has come to know himself by discerning each feeling of his soul has sown on earth. I'm sorry, he who has come to know himself by discerning each feeling of his soul has sown on earth. But those who have not thus sown cannot expect humility to blossom forth. So when we have discerned where all of our feelings come from and where they have also taken root or what they've done, either to ourselves or to others, uh, this is the, the one who comes to experience humility. Uh, but when we have 
not seeing these things, when we have failed to discern them, to scrutinize the mind and the heart and, and the emotions, then, uh, then we, we, will, we will not come to possess it. It won't blossom within us. And that's admittedly, again, a rather jarring thought uh, because we often treat emotions as though they have no meaning. And, uh, you know, some emotions aren't necessarily sinful, of course, and they're part of being a human being and can be a good thing. But it does not mean they have no meaning or cannot be di directed or direct us in such a way that, it, uh, that they are destructive or that they blind us to the things of God or the goodness of others. And, uh, and so there has to be a willingness, you know, as we take every thought captive, we also, as it were, take our emotions captive or be willing to look at them and expose them to the light of the truth, to be discerning, discriminating in such a way that we see their origin and, uh, and also, also their fruit. Number 29, he who has come to know himself has obtained an understanding of the fear of the Lord. And he who has walked by the aid of this fear has reached the door of love. So to know ourselves, to see ourselves clearly, I think is also to see what we are, are really worthy of. And, uh, and also to see the depths of God's love. You know, we hear in the scriptures that, you know, while we are yet enemies of God, God in his great mercy came and showed us this abundance of mercy. And as we progress within the spiritual life, we, we come to understand that and uh, come to, to experience this fear of, of the Lord. You know, the magnitude of that mercy uh, in and of itself is awe-inspiring enough to, to make us tremble. What is it that God, uh, or what is it about uh, us as human, as human beings that God would give us the attention that he does? And if on some level that does not make us tremble, uh, you know, but again, by the magnitude of it, you know, what is it that allows God to approach us and not only treat us with mercy, but to elevate us, uh, even as have, after having treated him as enemies, elevate us to participate in, the, in his very life. And so often, you know, we hear people say, you know, why this insistence upon the fear of the Lord? Well, it's not an insistence upon the fear of the Lord as though God wants us to stand before him and tremble and he's trying to frighten us, you know, into to virtue. It is the very reality of God and the depth of, of love, the extraordinary nature of that in the, the face of sin and the magnitude of sin and ingratitude that fills the heart with fear. And partly, you know, 
what would fill the mind would be the potential of 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 losing that uh, after it has been given, or of not uh, keeping it in sight or treating it cheaply. Anthony writes, I believe a post-communion prayer by St. Basil the Great uh, in the Teal Ruthenian book asks God that the holy body and blood be for the healing of our feelings and emotions. Uh, I think, or is it in one of the litanies? I, I can't quite remember, but I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I'm newer to the uh, the the liturgy and uh, of the East, but uh, that does strike me as memorable. Any other thoughts or comments before we move on? Humility is the door of the kingdom that introduces those who draw near to it. And I think that the Lord was speaking of this door when he said, he shall enter and shall pass out of life without fear and shall find pasture and green grass and paradise. All who have entered the monastic life by any other door are thieves and robbers of their own life. So Christ also calls himself the door. And again, I think this is what, in my reading of it this time through, has made it so striking, uh, the language that John is using and the imagery here, that uh, humility is the door to the kingdom, and that Christ in, uh, is the embodiment of this holy humility. And we see it perfectly as he stretches himself out upon the cross. And it's in and through this door, this dying to self and sin, uh, that, uh, that we enter into paradise, that we die to our attachment to sin, uh, as well as our attachment to our, our ego, our self, as it were, outside of this relationship with God. And so again, I think here once more in John's sayings, we are presented with this image of a virtue, perhaps in a way that we haven't thought about it before. At least I, I haven't thought about it in, in this fashion before. I think sometimes it's even hard to think about humility, to be quite honest with you, uh, in any deep fashion. Uh, the, there's... Uh, a part of us, I think, that resists doing so, uh, because to draw near to it is to draw, you know, ourselves into the light or allow ourselves to be drawn into the light. Uh, but to hear it described in this way is a way almost equated with Christ Himself, and uh, our very passage into the kingdom is, is striking. Uh, and in a, and that would be an understatement. Number 31. He who, uh, we who wish to understand must not cease to examine ourselves. If in the perception of our heart, we consider that our neighbor excels us in all things, then divine mercy is near us. So if, if we truly desire to understand what John is speaking about here in regards to humility, 
that we won't ever cease from examining ourselves and our hearts, and that we also won't cease to exalt others uh, higher than ourselves as well. That uh, knowing, I think, how it is that um, we are blinded by our pride, that we often do not see that which is good and true in the other. And so to compel ourselves uh, to examine ourselves, but also uh, to acknowledge the uh, how others excel us is something that helps to bring, bring this virtue about. Uh, let's see here. There are a couple comments here. No, Sean writes from St. Basil's Post Communion Prayer. Oh, thank you. Oh, our Lord, oh Lord, who love us all. You died and rose for our sake, and you have given us these awesome and life-creating mysteries for the benefit and sanctification of our souls and bodies. Grant that they may bring us about, bring about the healing of my soul and body and defeat every enemy, the enlightenment of the eyes of my heart, the calming of my thoughts and emotions, a faith that cannot be confounded, a love that does not pretend a wisdom that overflows the full observance of your commandments, the increase of your divine grace this, and citizenship in your kingdom, being preserved in your holiness by them, I remember your love at all times. Beautiful. And so is this from the liturgy of St. Basil? Is, that, uh, Sean, Yes, that's what I thought. Okay, very good. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, finding that for us. It's beautiful. Let's see, where did we leave? Okay, one more came in. Daniel writes, I get seeing the good in others and not seeking to lift oneself up to in comparison to others. But if we examine ourselves constantly or even too often, how do we avoid becoming neurotic? How do we examine ourselves constantly and remain gentle and patient to ourselves? It's, a, it's an excellent question, you know, because I, I think we can have that proclivity towards this kind of neurotic uh, approach to the spiritual life. And I think the way that we avoid it is by living in Christ through uh, this kind of constancy of prayer and the remembrance of God, this kind of self-examination outside of prayer is inevitably going to lead to neuroses or despondency, despair, when it, it, the focus is on ourselves in such a way outside of our a living relationship with the Lord our God. And this is why I think they, uh, the Eastern Fathers stress so much the uh, this movement in repentance from compunction, this acknowledgement of our sin, to the joy of restored union with the Lord, and uh, that seeing it always within the context of that relationship, I think the the neuroses uh, uh, enters into it when we lose sight of God. And I think this can be a kind of temptation for us as well, you know, to engage in the ascetic life 
and this kind of examination of the emotions or uh, our thoughts, but to, to do so again outside of the, the grace of God and this intimacy with him that comes through through prayer. Uh, because inevitably we're going to become fatigued by it, exhausted by it, and depressed by it. Or if we are, have tendencies towards, you know, obsessive compulsive thinking, then we're going to get wrapped up in uh, an unending uh, circle of rumination uh, that does not bring healing. Uh, because again, it's just this kind of revolving around the particular sin or weakness, uh, but not under uh, the sight of God, as it were. So we abstract what is talked about here from that relationship. This is where the neurosis comes in. And I think neurosis as a whole and depression as a whole now that you brought it up, I think a lot of what we experience in this world in terms of the darkness of heart, depression, anxiety, comes from our loss of the sight of God. Uh, that, uh, you know, we can undergo great trials, but when, you know, we have this clear sense of the presence of God, of his love, of his mercy, we can know the weight of those things and still not be drawn into a kind of despondency. Uh, but our, our life can be actually very good and we can be drawn into despondency because uh, it, everything seems lacking to us. Uh, St. Isaac the Syrian, I think, actually says that the, the fool sees his... Uh, uh, how does he put that again? Sees his, uh, uh, you know, what what he possesses as his portion. Know, his portion. Can you say the whole thing? Something like uh, the fool's portion is small in his own eyes, or That's something right. like that. The fool, yeah, the fool's portion is small in his own eyes. That you know, outside of our seeing ourselves in that relationship with God, then everything is going to seem small in our eyes and uh and so not only will we fall into this kind of neurosis that you speak of but i think into this kind of uh ingratitude or deep sadness about life as a whole and this isn't to fault an individual because i think life can batter upon us so hard at times uh that it, we can lose sight of god and, you know, I think the fathers put before us this call for constancy of prayer, again, not simply as a discipline, but as a way of, of protecting us, of comforting the heart. The quicker, the sooner, and the, the, the uh, uh, frequency that we uh, call upon God, the, the quicker then that we are consoled by his grace. It's not as though God wants to hold, withhold it from us. This is our ability to turn to him in an instant will bring what is needed to the heart to persevere. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate that. Uh, Suzanne writes, I wonder if a sign of growing humility is the subsiding of 
hair trigger emotional reactions to things people say. Uh, certainly a sign of humility. And I think of, of maturing uh, emotionally and also uh, I think of healing, you know, that often our responses or this hair trigger uh, reaction that you speak of sometimes can be rooted in the wounds that we bear that need to be healed by God, that there are things that trigger an emotional response because they are reminiscent of things that we've endured in the past. And so opening the mind and the heart to God in prayer, you know, we also open our minds and our hearts to him about the, the, the wounds that we've, we've borne. You know, God knows these things and these, sees these things. And, uh, and, and so understanding the source of that hair trigger emotion is very important. Not to, in other words, not to approach it simply in a moralistic kind of fashion, but to understand where it is coming from in order that we might open ourselves and allow ourselves to become vulnerable to God uh, in, in order that some healing might take place or vulnerable before those the that God gives us uh, to address those wounds. But in any case, I, I get your point. And the simple answer to it would be yes, that as we come to see these things and acknowledge them clearly is when healing begins. And uh, the fathers are pretty clear about this uh, in their writings that you know God's love is always curative, even when at times it feels painful to us as when we go to a physician and something has to be done in order to bring about healing for us, that uh, God's love isn't punitive, you know, but rather is seeking to draw us to the fullness uh, of life and love. Uh, Ambrose Little writes from Unseen Warfare, if a man does not rely on himself, but puts his trust in God, uh, when he falls, he is not greatly surprised and is not overcome with excessive grief. For he knows that it is the result of his own impotence and above all of the weakness of his trust in God. So his downfall increases his distrust of himself and makes him try all the harder to increase and deepen his humble trust in God. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Uh, it seems like part of not getting down on ourselves and anxious neurotic is accepting that we are weak and allowing God to fill our weakness with his power. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think uh, this is why we want to uh, keep before our eyes this understanding of the curative nature of that love. Uh, even as we talk about things such as repentance or the penitential life, fasting, vigils, that, you know, that this isn't self-punishment, you know, that all these things are to lead us to God or, or focus upon God or experience his healing, or they uh, are not going to bear fruit for us. This work, Unseen Warfare, is an extraordinary work as well. Sort of a curious little history to it. It's rooted in uh, Lorenzo Scopoli's spiritual combat or spiritual warfare 
that I believe St. Theophan, and I don't know if it was another, sort of reworked it, uh, adding in the wisdom of the, the fathers. Um, but an excellent work. Okay, that brings us to 8.30. Any final comments? Cindy writes, my apologies if my questions seem flippant. Not at all about asking for a raise. I suppose that everyone knows now that I've never been able to do it in 60 years of my profession. <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you to do it because if you get fired, then I'm going to get blamed for it. Uh, uh, no, I think, uh, you know, what, what I said is true, but, you know, sometimes we work in an environment where those things aren't attended to and where the efforts and the work of of those aren't value and I've, I've seen it over and over again and sometimes it's the worst in the church believe it or not that those who keep things running are often behind the scenes and and uh what they do uh you know really is incredibly valuable and should be acknowledged i had this great experience once once with bishop monsoor the Maronite Bishop on uh, from the East Coast here. Uh, I think it's the Eparchy of Brooklyn. Uh, but he was here in Pittsburgh for a liturgy. And after the liturgy, they uh, gave these awards and plaques with these you know, quotes of the favorite saints of these individuals. But they are individuals within the parish that had worked behind the scenes, sometimes for 30 or 40 years, with no acknowledgement. And, but what was beautiful about it is that Bishop Mansour had the little children in attendance at this dinner present the award to these individuals. And he, he explained to them why it was being done. And it was incredibly impactful. And I'm sure for, for those little children as well, but uh, more even more so for the adults that, you know, he focused in where he needed to focus to teach these children to be attentive to often what is hidden and valuable about individuals. And uh, so not to digress here at the end of the group, but just struck me from what uh, Cindy was talking about here in regards to a raise that often we don't acknowledge the value of others. So again, that brings us to 8.30. So why don't we close as always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.